We are continuing our study of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can pull out your sermon insert there. Today we are looking at Revelation chapter 5. Um, and inside that you'll find the text as well as a brief outline. Uh, as Roger just mentioned, I am freshly back from Ethiopia uh, serving. If you, if you didn't know, New City has three global missions partners. Two of them are serving in closed and restricted countries where I cannot even tell you where they're serving. Um, that would be Ryan and Katie and Salim and Joy. That is not even their name uh, because they have to be so undercover. The third missions partner is Michael and Kanan Granger, what we often will say is the Granger family. So I was with them. I was in country for about a week. I feel like mentally I'm still in Africa. Um, you guys didn't tell me jet lag was a real thing. I thought you guys were lying, like, oh, I'm just sleepy. I don't sleep on a plane. No, it's terrible. Um, so I was up much of the night. I can't vouch for anything that I'm about to say because I feel exhausted. But um, uh, the Grangers send their warm greetings and thanks, Michael and Kanan. Michael's a seminary buddy of mine. Kanan is an Ethiopian. She was born there, met Michael while he was over there on a short-term missions trip. They now have four amazing and beautiful kids, Moses, uh, Eden, Jerusalem, Juju, and Zion, or Zion, as we would say. Uh, just a wonderful time of encouraging them and serving them. I'm struck by two things pertaining to my trip to Ethiopia as it's connected to Revelation 5. I'm going to tell you about one of them now and the second one after the scripture reading. But the first one is that I was, I was uniquely moved worshiping with the church, Trinity Fellowship, Addis Ababa. Um, I, was, I got the privilege to preach there and to open God's word, but I was singing songs in Amharic and English or a combination of English and Amharic, lifting high the same Jesus while all of you were asleep. Eight hours difference. We were singing to the same king, the same scriptures, the very similar songs. Some of the same songs we sing here, but in Amharic, in an English combination. You could say that I was reminded of what Revelation 5 says, that our Jesus ransomed a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And they have worshipped eight hours ago the same king, studying Mark's gospel, but the same king, the same Jesus, the same gospel. It's amazing. We're actually not all there is. Some of us need that reminder, genuinely. <laughs> You're not the center of the universe. You're not the, we're not the only church. Now I'm praying that we are a good church, a gospel-centered church, but we are part of a global family. So I have one more thing to tell you about from my trip. Many of you want to hear much more. I'm working on that, some sort of update or, or blog. Or uh, we, While there, we shot a video. Um, they have a production guy that's going to put together a video, and, and I'll show you all of that. So you'll get to see Michael and Kanan and a little bit of their work and their ministry. So that should be coming in the weeks ahead. But I want to pause and ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 5 as we see this glorious picture this vision in Revelation 5. Follow along as I read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep 
no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sit out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me just briefly pray for us because I'm feeling my need. Uh, Lord, help me as I am tired to focus, to preach this amazing passage for which I feel inadequate. So use your word, speak through me to encourage us in the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A second thing I experienced in Ethiopia, many of you have already asked about, you've honed in on if you've seen my post on Workplace, and that was that I had the, privilege is not the right word, the opportunity to take the life of a goat. I killed a goat. It's one of the delicacies there, uh, there was a, uh, on Friday night in Ethiopia, there was a party celebrating the, the pastor's college students. That's another thing I mentioned. There was 10 pastor's college students that graduated, and they're being trained up to be ordained and sent out to be church planters throughout a very, very dark city that needs the gospel. So we were celebrating those pastor's college students, nine of which stayed around for an additional year of training as interns. They've raised their own funds and are doing this. So we were celebrating them and partying. Um, and enjoying a goat, but about two hours beforehand, I was told that I would be the one slaying the goat. So I did exactly what you think. They tie the goat up, and I sawed through the neck all the way to the bone. You could say that I'm very aware of what it might look like for a lamb to be standing as though slain. It's a lot of blood. Tons of blood. We're not told all the details of this lamb in Romans, uh, not Romans, Revelation 5, verse 6. But I can only imagine that as though slain means something for the neck region, means something for a cut, means something for the fur stained with blood. 
if not even looking off. And it is a, a thing that I think we can miss. Oh, standing as though slain, that's cool, with seven horns, seven eyes, all cool, cool, cool. This is an image that is meant to cause our stomach to churn. Especially in the West, we just pass through it because we often just eat our meat as it's put in our fridge and cooked and it's here. We don't see how it got there. I had the unique privilege of seeing exactly how meat gets from where it is to our plate. This is a vivid image. We're supposed to feel this. What we're supposed to see even more than this, though, is what the image points to. And so if I had to summarize it, and these are the three points that I'm just going to walk us through um, Revelation 5, is that what I want you to see is the Lamb of God, and if you're mistaken, that is, I just want everybody to be on the same page. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a lamb that he sees. It's a weird lamb that's standing as though slain, and it has horns and seven eyes. But in the book of Revelation, symbols point to something else. These are theologically informed symbols pointing to our slain but risen Lord Jesus Christ, who for our purposes I will be referring to as the lamb. And what we're going to see throughout Revelation 5 is the lamb of God is the point of history, the hope of the world, and the song of the redeemed. Jesus is the point of history, the hope of the world, and the song of the redeemed. But to use the words of Revelation 5, he is a slain lamb. Now the context you remember in Revelation, we're coming to Revelation chapter 5. What we've seen before this is Revelation 2 and 3. That's referencing the seven churches in first century, actual churches in Asia Minor, that many of them were struggling, suffering, persecuted for their love for Jesus. Many of them being beheaded, killed for their faith. And this vision, along with chapter 4, chapter 4 and 5 making up this one glorious heavenly vision, is encouraging them, hold on. Even if it means lose your life, look at what is happening in heaven. Look at where you're headed. These seven churches. But these seven churches, uh, many of them really struggling. And we're going to return to this at the end of my sermon. But these seven churches, a lot of them compromising. Just becoming one with the world. This same vision which comforts those who are being persecuted and slain for their faith is intended to, to wake them up. Turn from your sin and repent. Do you see the Lamb? There will not always be an opportunity to repent. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah as well. But as you looked at last week and this week, we're looking at the vision of Revelation 4 and 5, which truly is the heart of the book, the center of Revelation. And what we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of our week studying this amazing book, the book of Revelation, is that we're going to see that everything is flowing from the throne. Everything is coming from Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4, where we saw the glorious throne of God, where He is creator, the sovereign of the universe, and nothing happens outside of His control. The Lamb was there, but John couldn't see Him yet. Now he sees Him in Revelation 5. The song of heaven being centered not just on God and His strength and His might as creator and sovereign, but specifically the song of heaven is pointed at the Lamb because He was slain for you. And because He was slain, He is worthy. 
And so not only is Revelation 4 and 5 the center of the book, and the rest of Revelation flows from Revelation 4 and 5, but what we're looking at here is actually the meaning of all of history. This is where everything is going. If you want purpose, look at Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. The book of Revelation, as we've, we've hit on, I think, almost every week, comes from the first word of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the word apocalypse. But it simply just means to unveil, to disclose, to reveal, to make known. Revelation 4 and 5, friends, is unveiling for us what heaven is like right now. This is the closest thing we get to what is it like right now around the throne? What is it like in heaven? What are they doing? What are they saying? What are they singing? This is one clear picture into what reality is like, you could say. What is going on around us in heaven? Well, let me tell you, they are singing and making much of the Lamb. So we are witnessing this morning, Revelation 5, the the unveiling of how things really are. The why things are and the where things are headed. So first, I want us to see that the slain lamb is the point of history. This is verses 1 through 4, where we meet a scroll, or sometimes if you're reading uh, broadly, it'll say book. A book or a scroll, and it's exactly that. Think of a scroll rolled up, and it has seven seals to keep it closed. What is this seal? Well, Greg Beal and his commentary, I think I included it in your insert, He succinctly says the book, or the scroll, is best understood as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but is yet to be completed. So it's hard for us to imagine, but this this scroll is God's plan of judgment and salvation. How can sinful humans be restored? How can the act of Adam and Eve in the garden and the fall be restored? reversed what is our hope how will things be made right we look around and see the wickedness what is God's plan for judgment on the wicked and making all things right it's in this scroll don't you want to know what's in the scroll or another commentator Leon Morris he says the scroll is surely that which contains the world's destiny and its contents are revealed to us pictorially as the seals are broken which will be in the coming weeks. But we have this scroll, this book. It is not an overstatement to say that it is everything. This scroll is everything. Why the world is, how we got here, what our purpose is, who God is, where things are headed, what's your hope, how can your sins be forgiven? You could even say, well, what happens when we die? The coming judgment upon the unrepentant is in this scroll. I want to know what's in the scroll. I want to know what's going to happen in history. We're told that the scroll, in verse 3, is, is written front and back. Extensive. It's, it's, it's covered everywhere. Every square inch of the scroll is filled. But it's sealed. Sealed with seven Seal. Seven is important. It means complete and whole, as we're going to see in a few moments, but it's completely secure. As of now, as the reader, only the one on the throne knows what's in the scroll. 
And John, his anticipation is probably killing him. How will we ever know? What is the hope of the world? Who is worthy to open the scroll? The, the one on the throne has it, but is he going to tell us? Who's, who's worthy to open? Will we ever know God's plan of redemption and judgment? Will we ever know the plan of history? And then something happens in verse 3. John is told no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is worthy to open it. Why, if we just pause for a minute, why is he weeping? Why is John weeping? Well, does, he probably longs to know what's in it. As I've just said, it sounds pretty cool. So that's part of it, yes. His anticipation is, is driving him, but then he's told no one's worthy. We're not going to open it. That's part of it. Maybe he's even a little anxious and fearful that he's not going to find out. Will I ever know what's in the scroll? Will I ever know the point of history or our hope? Probably all of that, but I like the interpretation of, of Greg Beale, who certainly is speculating here a little bit, but I wonder if John, and you recall John, same John from John's gospel is who? Jesus' closest friend. I wonder if he's weeping because he thought Jesus would be worthy, but nobody's worthy. Did I, did I screw up? putting all my eggs in the basket of Jesus. Where's he at? I, I, don't, I don't see him up here. I wonder if he's weeping. Because for a moment, he's like, I got it wrong. Jesus isn't as great as I thought. Again, I wonder. But... And if that is true, if that's at least part of what's crossing his mind, how, how much application is there for us? I wonder if some of us in this room cannot relate with John, if in fact that is going into his soul when he's weeping. I, I guess no, no one's worthy to open the scroll. Maybe, maybe that's you. I, I thought Jesus would have, you fill in the blank. Life hasn't turned out the way I thought, and you guys keep preaching from the, the pulpit and from the Word of God that God does everything for our good. It doesn't feel like that. I thought. And then the tears come. But that's not the end of the story, friends. Because like John, in Revelation 5, his vision is clouded. He just needs to turn because somebody is worthy. That takes us to the second point. The slain lamb is the hope of the world. Somebody is worthy to open the scroll. This is verses 5 through 7. The slain, slain lamb is the hope of the world. John's despair, his weeping, is turned to joy when one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Dry your eyes. Somebody is worthy. You just can't see him yet. Let me show you. Look there. We're told that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, 9 and 10. We're told that he's the root of David, a quote from an often uh, Advent reading, Isaiah 11, verse 1. 
So the suspense is building here. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered. The root of David is conquered. Yes, it's him. Somebody's worthy to open God's plan of redemption and judgment. Who is it? What does he look like in heaven? What do you think John's expecting to see? Aslan? A mighty warrior, maybe? Strength and muscle, warrior king with a sword and shield and spear. Instead, he looks. And look at verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Not the symbol of power that I thought he would see. John's like, what am I seeing? Especially when you add to it seven eyes and seven horns. And again, as though it had been slain, like, ugh. Here's the lamb. Now again, as I mentioned, it's important to note that apocalyptic symbols are never about the symbols themselves. They're theologically informed symbols pointing to something else. So I'm just saying that lest you think that our risen Lord Jesus is actually a lamb with seven horns, seven eyes, and a gash across his throat. But nevertheless, he sees this lamb. But it's pointing to something else, or we could say someone else. To use this same man's words from his gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those are John the Baptist's words. But it's the Lamb. He stands for, for Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, who died and is alive forevermore. But it is a curious symbol. It's a symbol of death, of weakness, of, of blood, of sacrifice and atonement. We could say the lion isn't a lion at all. He's a lamb. But that's the beauty of Revelation is he conquered through dying. He crushed Satan through death. He defeated your sin by dying for that sin. The conquering was through the death. And a curious thing that one of the commentators pointed out to me that he actually stays a lamb throughout the entire book, even at the end. The lion is a lamb. He conquered through his substitutionary death for you. He disarmed the enemies and the rulers as he hung on a criminal's cross. This, this whole thing, and, and what I'm hoping to get out here, if, if it's not clear already, is to see the vitally central reality of the cross of Jesus Christ for the life of us, for the life of, of believers. We don't graduate and move on from Jesus' cross His death for us. His wrath-appeasing and sin-satisfying death as our substitute. We don't, okay, that's cool, I'm a Christian now, so I got that, and now I'll move on to more important things. He's the song of heaven, and the song is centering on his death. But it's curious. Some might say it's foolishness, to quote Paul. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. The word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, this is the power of God. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, 
the cross of Jesus Christ where his blood was shed for you to make you righteous and to cover your sins, the very sins we just confessed in our confession of sin, is the song of heaven. It's what heaven is singing about right now. That good news of Jesus is the thing into which angels long to look. The angels that are in heaven singing about it. We wish we knew what it was like to be redeemed by the Lamb. My question for us from this second piece of the vision in Revelation 5 is simply that. Is, is the cross, is the slain Lamb the song of your soul? Is the Lamb who was slain for your sins, let's, let's personalize it, for your sins, the central theme of your thought life? What gets you going? Excites you? Even as I'm talking, I'm getting excited. Thinking, is, is the cross of Jesus Christ your joy? The thing you comfort your discouragement with? What you use to war against your sin? Because friends, I want to be clear. There are a number of, of good things in life. Even biblical things. Good things with which to concern ourselves. Justice. Poverty alleviation, our own personal holiness. There are a number of good biblical things. There's a number of, of neutral things we could say. Your job, your, your interests, your, your hobbies. All the personality tests out there to know thyself as, as much as you can. Your diet, your exercise regimen. We all have our things, but none of those are the song of heaven. As a matter of fact, none of those are worth a dime if they are not connected to the Lamb of God slain for sinners. It's what heaven is singing about right now. Jesus is the central theme of heaven in one aspect, specifically his death for us and his glorious resurrection for our justification is the centerpiece. It's not just the center of human history as we look back, although it is. It's actually the center of the song around the throne right now. This lamb, as we read this, we should have thought back to a couple of things, at least to the book of Exodus the lamb, the, the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. You might think of the Pharaoh and the ten plagues, the tenth plague being the death of the firstborn, the Passover lamb, which was slain and the blood put over the doorpost so that the angel of death passed over. The blood of that lamb, you could say, spared the people from death. It's an immediate trigger to the first century readers. But specifically also maybe to a passage we looked at just a few weeks back when we were still in our Old Testament survey passage, uh, a sur uh, study, Isaiah 53, where we saw the suffering servant spoken of as a lamb whose stripes, whose wounds heal us, who forgives the sins of the many. So this lamb, in verse 6, is standing as though slain, again, odd enough already, a standing, cut, dead lamb, but... He also has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns are, are, are a symbol of power. And again, that word seven meaning complete or whole. So this lamb, you can imagine, if in fact I'm right, that he's bleeding and beat up, broken, maybe his neck is even turned. We're, with the seven horns, we're supposed to think that thing has all power. 
That one has all authority and strength, complete power. And he has seven eyes. The eyes, again, seven meaning complete, symbolize his vision. He's all seeing. He knows everything. Even in your life, this lamb knows all of you. Knows you more than you know yourself. And this is Jesus Christ. And all of it is connected in the next phrase in verse 6. The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this, this, his all-powerfulness, his horns, his all-seeing, all-knowing, seven eyes, are connected to the all-powerful, all-knowing spirit of Christ. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Sent out throughout the entire world to carry out God's sovereign plan, which is in the scroll. The Lamb is the point of history. The Lamb is also the hope of the world. There is forgiveness in no one else but this lamb's blood there is no forgiveness of sins found except in him he is the hope and that's our connection to these candles before me the advent season that we are remembering the god man the god who took on flesh became jesus the second person of the trinity this is the christmas story but connect it to Revelation 5. The Christmas story happened because the Son of God came to die. He came for you. His sights were set on redeeming a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Not only are the medieval pictures, as Roger mentioned, sometimes unhelpful, we can just stay there. Like, oh, Christmas just stays in the manger. The purpose of Bethlehem was Calvary. The purpose of Christmas was Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The purpose was, was us. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. This Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, standing as though slain for our sins and as our substitute, stands at the very center of heaven. And he's being praised right now by all of creation, all of the elders, which symbolize the church, Jew and Gentile alike, are standing, praising him, worshiping, exalting him for his death for you and for me. And if I'm being honest, I'm a preacher. I think Roger's mentioned this before, especially around Good Friday service and Christmas Eve service, which is coming up. kind of like got to say the same thing all the time there. Gotta get, the temptation is to be creative and, and, and uh, innovative. But this is a real reminder against my preacher's heart. The angels in heaven never tire of singing about Jesus. They never tire of singing about the cross and his glorious, triumphant resurrection. Do you? Do I? Do I, do I get tired of, of preaching it? Well, they've heard this. Let me be innovative and cool. This is such a challenge to me. In glory, the song is worthy as the lamb who takes away our sin. Worthy is the, the one who was ransomed, who shed his blood. May we never tire of singing of Christ crucified and risen, the slain lamb because he's the hope of the world. His death is everything. His blood changes everything. He is worthy, and it's because his death he's worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals. But third and finally, the slain lamb is not only the point of history and the hope of the world. He is the song of the redeemed. This is verses 8 through 14. It starts with in verse 8, with these people, hold the four living creatures, 24 elders, falling down, that's a posture of worship before the Lamb, each holding a harp, 
which I'm told throughout Scripture is an instrument of joy and happiness. This is, this is exuberant. This is, yes, the Lamb. They're singing major keys, we could say. doesn't always have to be major keys. We, we often talk about that as a music, music team. Minor keys are okay, too, but, but we're joyful here. We're, we're happy. They're celebrating the Lamb with, with harps, bowls of incense, which I can barely get my mind around this. The, the bowls with which they're worshiping the Lamb are the prayers of the saints. Pause. Remember, connect Re- Revelation 5 to what's come before it in Revelation 2 and 3. What do you think would be uberly encouraging to a church tempted to compromise or a church tempted to give up on Jesus because we're getting our heads chopped off? Probably that your words are coming before the throne of God. Probably that your prayers are actually moving history along. Your prayers are connected to the scroll being opened. Your prayers are doing something. And if I taught that to myself, if I looked myself in the mirror and preached that more often, I would probably pray a lot more. I'd be a lot more passionate in my praying because it's doing something, friends. The elders in heaven and the four odd living creatures are bowing down before the Lamb with your prayers and your prayers that you pray are doing something and accomplishing something and moving history along. It's not a waste of time to pray. Prayer is not a last resort. My least favorite phrase that I've tried I'm going off script here, always dangerous, that I've, that I've tried to, to war against is that, okay, what, what can I do for you? I'll, I'll just pray. I hate that. I'm talking to myself. I'm not putting any of you on here. No one, I, I've heard none of you say that, and so I'm not speaking of, of anyone, but almost like prayer is just that, okay, that's about all I can do. That's just a little, little small thing I can contribute. I'll just pray. That prayer is heard by the throne and changes history. It's amazing. And I hope that encourages you as well. Do you see your prayers that way? Verse 9 and 10, which are my last comments as we go to the table in just a few moments. This is the song of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let me go ahead and read verse 10 as well. And you were made a kingdom, priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, Christ, pictured as this lamb standing as though slain, died at the hands of wicked men, and in dying he did die a gruesome death. Death of a criminal on a cross. We read about it at the conclusion of most of our gospel accounts. And yet, we see it as what it was, dark. Good Friday is a somber moment. And yet, we now see it with fresh eyes. We see this moment, the slaying of Jesus, his blood shed to ransom us as glorious and beautiful. To use the words of Peter, which was our declaration of pardon, the precious blood of Christ. And I'm aware, all of what I've, I should have said this at the very beginning, everything I've said this morning is very odd 
in modern ears. I've talked a lot about blood, blood covering you. I didn't mention that when I took the life of the goat, my shoes are covered in blood. It is a gross thing. And yet, those brought to life by the Spirit, we love it. Love the cross. The Puritans used to speak of loving the blood. Again, sounds very odd if taken out of context. This blood of Jesus is our life because this blood shed for us covers our sin. We're forgiven, free, and restored, spared from hell, spared from death because Jesus died in our place. It's a good news. That's what we're saved from, but verse 10 is what we're saved to. We've been made a kingdom and priests to our God. The same blood that Jesus shed for us to cover our sins and make us righteous in God's sight is what makes us a family. I'm looking at very different people, very different interests, very different in many ways. Last Sunday, I worshipped 7,500 miles away on the other side of the world with a very different group of people who speak a different language, but we have been made a family. We are a kingdom of priests, a building in which God now dwells, a building that is global, made up of every tribe, language, people, and nation. Friends, let me conclude with this as we go to the table. Benjamin Gladden and Matthew Harmon in their excellent book, Making All Things New, check out this subtitle, Inaugurated Eschatology for the Life of the Church. It's a good time, just don't pay attention to that, that subtitle. It means already begun but not yet eschatology, end times stuff. It's a, it's a study of our topic. And they spend extended time looking at Revelation 4 and 5 and make this really helpful remark about what's happening in heaven and how that should inform your life and your thoughts and your prayers and your own singing, not just here but through the week. They make the observation that Revelation 4 and 5 are, quote, that the focus of heaven's worship is God's role as creator and sovereign ruler of the universe, a role which he had from the dawn of creation. That's Revelation 4. And now, Revelation 5, that that worship is directed toward the Lamb, focusing on his sacrificial death, which accomplishes the redemption of his people, who are drawn from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, I hope I have hit the same drum throughout the morning. Because there is no drum for us to beat other than this. The Lamb of God was slain for you. Do you trust him? Have you given yourself over to the lamb who was slain, whose blood purchased you, redeemed you? That's what ransom means. You've been bought. So friends, as we, we go to the table, we're going to the table of the lamb where the bread symbolizes the lamb's body standing in heaven but as though slain for you. His body broken for us. And the, the red wine or the white grape juice picturing his blood which was shed to ransom you, a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And it's that risen Christ right now standing in heaven receiving the songs of the 24 elders and the four living creatures who will meet with you right now, who will stoop down from his throne to nourish your soul as you come to the table. This is the table of the Lamb. And so, you are invited if you are trusting in this Lamb. If you see Jesus as, as glorious and you say, I'm putting all my hope in him, 
you're resting on Jesus alone for salvation, then come to the table and be nourished as you partake of bread and wine. This is the table of the Lamb. The way we do it here at New Cities, you'll go to the outside of the room, receive bread and either red wine or white grape juice, and bring your elements back to your table, and we'll partake together as a kingdom of priests, purchased by the blood of Christ, and the Lamb will meet with us. Let me pray for us, and as I do, those who are serving can go take your places. Oh, Lord God, you are kind. And we say with the words of Revelation 5, worthy are you because you were slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus, be with us now as we partake in your supper, a supper of the Lamb. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray all of this. Amen.